Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, Esports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many esports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they are eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every esports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, Esports 101. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, where we talk about how esports can create jobs anywhere in the world. Play games, create jobs, change lives. In season one, we talked about jobs. In season two, we talked about sponsorship. We talked about investment. We called it follow the money. And here in season three, we're talking more about esports as a business, esports 101. Now, today's guest is Namish Rout from India. He's, he's the global head of esports partnerships and special projects at Nodwin Gaming. He's also had experience with some of the really top esports and sponsorship organizations around the world, Fnatic, Riot Games, and Red Bull. Welcome, Namish. Good evening. How are you? Thank you for having me here. So, so where, where are you speaking to us from? Uh, I'm currently in a small town in, in India called Goa. Uh, while I'm actually, I was initially based in the financial capital Mumbai. But around two years back, I decided that I needed a good work-life balance. And because I work in esports, I had the opportunity to work from anywhere. So I decided to work from a small town. And uh, whenever I have work, I travel around the world, including Mumbai, Singapore, Dubai. But when I'm not in a city, I'm back home in an environment where I can possibly be a little bit more creative, give my give my busy life a break that is always required in, a, in an industry like esports. And, and just as I said, just just always be ready for the next big challenge. Great, great. We're going to be talking a lot about sponsorship here and partnerships, uh, which kind of the lifeblood of of esports out there. But first, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up working in esports? Um, it's it's a it's a very it's a very interesting story actually. Uh, my first ever business uh, when I was probably like maybe nine years old. Uh, you know, I was I was very lucky that my father used to used to travel around the world and. He used to buy me all these different different consoles, including the Atari and the Nintendo and the Beta Five. And at at one point, I had I think around uh, maybe around eight or ten different consoles, uh, mostly eight bit and sixteen bit uh, video games. Uh, and a lot of my friends used to borrow them over the weekend to play. And then I had another friend of mine uh, who actually was a collector of eight uh, bit cassettes, and uh, he had everything from Zelda to Felix the Cat. Uh, to NBA, uh, to Bugs Bunny uh, on his on the cassettes, and uh, I was like, "Hey, listen, like you know, people are borrowing this from me on weekends. These are my friends, uh, but you know, it's kind of unfair that you know I don't get anything in return." So the nine-year-old me made a small little poster, and I started saying that, "Hey, I actually give this on rent." And at that time, I would charge in Indian currency was was twenty rupees which would probably be like 10 cents uh, for uh, the whole day. And that's how I actually, that was my first real uh, association with video games and the business of video games. And it actually grew. It it grew to a point where as a nine-year-old kid, I was making anything between close to $70 to $80 a month. And that's a lot of money in Indian rupees uh, back in the day uh, for a nine-year-old. And my father was like, where the hell are you getting all this money from? And I was like, oh, no, I started this little rental business of video games. And people like basically just, re- and I, I used to stay in a, in a complex that had around like 400 families. So it was all friends who were actually renting it out from me. But it, it did really, really well till the time uh, the PC revolution came in. And then obviously everyone got a PC in their house and started playing video games on PC. And somewhere the 8-bit revolution kind of died out after that. And uh, also, so did my interest. You know, I, I completely skipped the the entire PC revolution and kind of focused on uh, you know computer science. And my first job was actually in cricket, like every other Indian. Uh, so always worked in sports management all my life. And then somewhere around 2012, I revisited the idea of video games when I got introduced to League of Legends uh, when I was working for Red Bull. And then I realized that. Oh, holy shit! Like video games has become like competitive, and it's like any other sport. So very early 2012, while I was working working in mainstream sport, uh, working in cricket, working in football, hockey, I had made up my mind that when the Indian market is ready, 
or when when I feel that the the size of the market is ready for turning this into a sport, I will be the first person to actually jump and and make that shift. And God's been kind. I think I got an opportunity with Riot Games, and through Riot Games, I moved to Fnatic. And here I am. I would say I'm the first generation of sports marketing person in India who actually made the shift to uh, esports, not just uh, like physically, but also mentally way back in 2012. So it's like a decade in the making in a way. But uh, when the mobile revolution happened, it's much easier for me because I'd already made up my mind that this is sport and this is only going to get bigger. So for me, the transition was much easier than a lot of my other colleagues. Right? When you're talking about your, your background, in um in traditional sport what are the similarities between traditional sport in your part of the world and esports do you think i and what are some of the difference yeah i think the biggest similarity of course is the just the passion points right i'm saying i can i can in my part of the world i can compare the biggest esport that we have in the country which is bgmi with the biggest sport that we have in the country which is cricket right so the the common factors is there is massive love for the game, which means it has a massive fan base. Uh, a massive fan base also shows uh, in terms of viewership numbers. So for any sport to be successful, you need to have people play the sport a lot and also watch the sport, right? These two, these two components are extremely important for making a very commercial, viable sport product, you know? Uh, whether it's in the US, right? While, sorry, I think my phone just fell down. One minute. Uh, where are you going? There you are. Can you still see me? No, no, we can see hear you, but no, no, no picture there. We'll cut this part out. Can you see that? There you go. There you go. Sorry, yeah. No, so I was, I was just saying, like, so in the U.S., of course, of the number of people who play basketball and the number of people who play or, or watch basketball and, and play basketball, uh, it's not the same, but it's still a huge number, and that's why the sport is extremely successful because. You not only have people who want to watch it, but you also have people who play it on a regular basis and then that kind of feed into each other, right? So that is extremely crucial and that is existing in India because of the fact that we have one very popular game, which is BGMI, which is PUBG Mobile, basically. And then we, of course, uh, have the viewership and we have the number of people who play it as well. So these two factors are extremely crucial and, and similar in terms of the sport. The second part, of course, is the, the emotion side of it, right? Uh, I think for any any sport to be successful, not just as a sport, but also commercially, you need to have people who are extremely loyal and extremely interested in the outcome of, of the competitive side of the sport. Uh, which means if when a team, my team wins, I am really, really like happy. If my team loses, I'm extremely sad. I'm extremely angry. I'm looking forward to making a comeback. There is revenge. There is all sorts of emotions are extremely important for sport. And those exist in esports as well. Um, so the, these two factors, I think, are, are the most common factors. Of course, the playgrounds are extremely different. The way people play the sport is very, very different. But these two, these two factors are extremely common. Uh, the major difference that I see between traditional sport and esport is uh, is just the the opportunity for esports to be activated from anywhere. For any other sport, you know, the physicality of the sport also comes with its own limitation in terms of how to play, when to play, what season I can play, uh, you know, especially with the outdoor sports, you know, with the indoor sports, it's much fine. It's okay. You can always play across the year. But even then, you know, because it's such a physical aspect, you know, there are quite a lot of, quite a lot of factors that come into play. Uh, whereas with eSport, I think that is currently not explored to that level. So we feel that it's a 24-7, 365 day of the year kind of a sport, right? There is no restriction. There's no physical restrictions of when I can execute this sport. And I think that that is a major plus point also. But it, it is also one of the major differences between mainstream sports and, and e-sport. Yeah. Uh, I think it's always interesting to make the comparisons there because every, everyone's familiar with traditional sports. Not everyone's familiar yet with e-sports. We to talk a little bit about sponsorship because that's, that's one of your, your strengths. A sponsorship and partnerships out there. Can you talk maybe a little bit about what's the role of sponsorship in esports? I think the biggest role, of course, is the the commercial angle, right? I think uh, sponsorship is extremely crucial for the success of esports uh, purely because it obviously brings in the required monies to run the run the entire ecosystem, right? So whether it's the teams, whether it's the publisher, 
whether it's the players, uh, they all depend on 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 revenue that comes from sponsorship to actually uh, you know turn this into a viable career and a viable uh, source of living for for people who are involved in this. But the other the other important aspect that that sponsorship plays is is the is the actual uh, promotion of the game itself, right? When big brands get involved with esports, you know they don't only really give in the monies, but they're also kind of validating the fact that it's a sport. It 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 just validates the 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 larger ecosystem and the larger industry, right? So I I feel that sponsorship plays two one is of course the money aspect, but then the second is also the perception aspect, right? Uh, way back in the day, a lot of brands that invested money in esports were traditional or endemic brands, you know, like people who were either making the hardware or the software. Uh, but when brands like automobiles or insurance companies or beverage companies or apparel companies, when they started uh, investing money in esports, it started validating the fact that this industry is not only about people who make equipment for this industry, but this is like any other sport. This is a way for you to reach out to a larger consumer and also bring in opportunity to engage with them or even market your products or sell your product as well. And I think that's where the world really opened up for us. It reminds me of talking to, uh, I believe it was Sadiq in Africa, one of his early uh, events. What he was able to do was um, he got Coca-Cola to sponsor it and they gave him no money. But he was able to use the Coca-Cola brand on his uh, on his event and it just gave him so much more credibility that people didn't know that uh, that maybe Coca Cola wasn't paying him anything. It yeah, kind of just added. We we it just added to his. We still do that. I'm saying we still do that so so much with with some big brands who we feel need to be educated and they need to experiment and they need to understand what what is the kind of returns that they can actually with sport like this. Um, I work with with major partners where they don't pay a lot of money right now. But they bring in the media value, they bring in the social reach, they bring in their set of consumers to, to the table, and uh, they help us grow the pie. And uh, they, they come back the next season and they're willing to spend a little bit more. It is all about, I think it's all about presenting the product in a manner where where it will eventually reach its potential. I'm saying, you know, the NBA was not the NBA a few years back. It took some, took some time for it to come to that level. But they had to prove, they had to prove the concept. You know, they had to, they had to show that hey, you know, we can create an ecosystem where people will pay. And I mean, I don't know what the ticket prices are now, but I think the upwards of like five, six hundred dollars for you to get a good ticket to watch an NBA game. Uh, similarly, like sales wise, you know, when you have the likes of Budweiser or the likes of Heineken sponsoring any of the the NBA teams or wanting to be in the stadiums, you know, the belief is that people will. People will buy the beers and they will drink the beers and it will help them sell sell stuff. I think uh, now it's reached a level where you don't need to prove the concept anymore. Now it's about really expanding and being creative with the concept. And I think if the NBA took 20 years to get, or say the last 25 years of the NBA is really where the actual commercial boom happened with the NBA, uh, you know, esports is currently like maybe five years old technically if you actually go to see. So imagine how this could look like in 2040 or 2045, you know, when I, I always say this to everyone that we are not the generation of esports consumers. The generation of esports consumers is currently in the age category of 8 to 12 years old. These are the kids who are actually growing up with the idea of the internet. Uh, they are the ones who are growing up with uh, something like an NBA and an LCS parallel to each other. And, uh, when they grow up and when they get into the consumer spending category of 18 to 24 years old, they will wear the NBA and esports pretty much in the same category. And that's where you actually see the massive boom. So if you think the boom is right now, like you wait for another five years or 10 years and these numbers will only grow and the spy is only going to get bigger. One of the things I like hearing you talk about is the long term. Because so many people are, are just thinking about the next deal. And it's like, instead, people, most people who are really successful are thinking about it in, in the long term. Can you talk a little bit about who are the, um, the big sponsors of esports in your part of the world? 
Uh, in our part of the world, of course, you know, uh, there are quite a few brands who have taken this very seriously. We are, we are quite a young country. Uh, I think we are one of the youngest countries in the world right now with the average population is under 24, uh, which obviously helps a lot because, uh, you know, while we have a billion people in our country, the reality is that our spending power is somewhere maybe around 200 to 250 million people who really have decent amount of money in their household to actually spend. It's still like maybe putting like half of Europe together when it comes to the population, right? So we have the numbers for sure. Um, the guys who are spending money right now uh, are a lot of the finance companies have realized that the next set of consumers or the next set, or the next generation of consumers uh, need to be spoken with a different language. Uh, so we, the likes of MasterCard and Visa, while they're still catering to the middle age uh, working audiences, some of the new fintech companies or new uh, NBFCs have started talking to the gamers uh, in a very different language because they realize that these are the guys who are going to be the next in line to either take any of the financial products, whether it's savings, whether it's credit cards, whether it's loans. So they are, they are the ones investing quite heavily within this space. The beverage companies continue to invest because they, the beverages have always been marketed to the younger audience, not not the beer category, but the soft drink or the energy drink category has always has always been a part of this space. Uh, surprisingly, a lot of uh, automobiles and a lot of uh, uh, like transportation companies. So whether it's the likes of uh, the Hyundai or Honda or some of the car companies or some of the two-wheeler companies and also the new age EVs, which are electric vehicles. Very, very interesting in the space because they're talking to a much younger audience who also wants to kind of be more, uh, you know, kind of be more aware of what they are doing to the planet. So there's like a synergy there as well. Uh, so these companies are investing quite a lot of money as well. Uh, and then the traditional, you know, computer companies of, of phone or handset mobile manufacturers are the ones. So these are the, the some of the biggest ones that are spending money in India. Who would you say is the most surprising sponsor that you've come across? You thought, you, you thought wow, I never thought this, this organization would be spending money in esports. Uh, the most surprising one that I've seen, and I would really like to see a lot more of this, is uh, a few condom companies. You know, uh, it was, according to me, it's a very strategic uh, fit. I think it's it's extremely important to have a dialogue with younger people about, uh, especially in in markets like India or even uh, you know whether it's Southern Africa or Northern Africa, uh, especially in countries where you know sex education or just lack of sex education is 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 a problem, and if you look at it from that angle, and if somebody who obviously uh, is a manufacturer of condoms and talks about safe sex and just in general wants to educate people about it, yeah, I think it's really really brilliant. You know, if you've done the right way, right, uh, you are talking to to the right generation who obviously uh, is going out there and uh, you know experimenting a lot more than what they were before when it comes to their sex life. Uh, you know, and why not? Like, why not have somebody who is basically built uh, with the with the product to have safe sex and talk about it and and talk to this generation in a language that they understand. I was actually it's very very bold, but I was I was very surprised to see that. But I was also very happy because I think it's it just opens up the conversation so much more better because um, it is at the need of the hour. And as a company, if you do it the right way, it will not only benefit you from a marketing perspective, but you're actually doing favor to uh, you know, to the next generation by by kind of making this whole idea of talking about it in a in a more non formal, non conservative. I've never heard that before, but but as you describe it, it makes a whole lot of sense yeah. for for all kinds of reasons. I I think that yeah, I think uh, I, I think you're you're onto something there. A lot in a lot of parts of the world, um, uh, sponsors are. Are, are normally handled by agencies. So if you are out there looking for a, a sponsor, should, should you be working with agencies or should you be trying to talk to the sponsor directly? Uh, I think it's a, it really depends on market to market. Uh, in certain markets, of course, you know, the agencies play a much bigger role. Uh, and as all markets are evolved and businesses are starting to kind of consolidate, you know, we've realized that uh, you could be a big agency in one market and then you 
kind of dictate what happens in other markets as well. And especially in markets like India or again Northern Africa or Southeast Asia, a lot of the a lot of the mandate actually comes from some of the big brands who are sitting in the US with the kind of media agency that they work with and then the business kind of gets transferred to either the APAC region or the MENA region. So working with the agencies is something that you will have to continue doing, whether you like it or not. Uh, the approach obviously depends on on educating, right? I think sometimes what happens is a lot of time gets not wasted, but a lot of time goes in, in explaining to the agencies or to the or to the media agencies about why they should be doing esports. Because for them, remember, this is just another platform where the brand has to spend money. Um, you know, they have 50 other proposals that they have on their table. You know, they have music concerts, they have other sporting events, they have GC events, they have uh, television uh, or uh, movies. So uh, for them to evaluate esports, you know, it has to be something that also needs to come from their client as well. So a lot of times a combination of client and agency that can also work really well. But in my part of the world, now we, we prefer working with, uh, with the clients directly. At least when it comes to the direction or when it comes to the brief in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and then post that if, if they put us onto the agency to kind of get more information or to kind of convince uh, their spends because the agencies are the ones who are, sometimes have the money because they run the media for the brand. Uh, then we do that job as well. But ideally, the direction of what they want to do and how they want to do should come from the brand. Can you talk a little bit about one of the things I think is fascinating about your your background in particular is the the caliber the level of of organizations that you've worked with is is really really good. I mean, when you're talking about Riot, you're talking about Red Bull, you're talking about Fnatic. I mean, these these are these are top companies. Could you maybe describe a little bit about it, it, the top companies like that? Do they approach things differently than than maybe some people that aren't at that level? Yeah, I must say it's 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 quite interesting that you asked that because uh, you know you 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 mentioned a few minutes back about the fact that like the fact that I talk about long term approach, and I think that's the that's the one from all these companies, right? Uh, and especially Red Bull a lot more than than the and Red Bull and Riot, I would say, even Fnatic for that matter. Uh, I was very very lucky and fortunate to work in an environment where people did not speak. What needs to be done today? You know, they always spoke about what we done like five years down the line, three years down the line, 10 years down the line. Uh, and it really opened up my eyes to the idea that, yeah, it's good to work for today because you're always working for paycheck to paycheck. But the reality is that you can only build legacy or you can only build relevance when you're able to really look beyond a, a certain horizon. And I think that's been my biggest uh, plus point working for these brands, right? Uh, they, they look or their approach is at least uh, while they continue doing what they're doing today for the today's consumer, they're always looking at how the consumer is going to be five years down the line, 10 years down the line, and building strategies for that and, and kind of building the required, you know, defense mechanism or, or basically building the required ammunition to actually handle that. Um, like, I know everyone talks about millennials and Gen Z. Uh, I was first introduced to the, to the terminology of Gen, uh, Gen Alpha when I was in Red Bull. And uh, and I was like, what the hell is Gen Alpha? Because I've never heard that. But Gen Alpha is basically somebody who's 10 years old today, between the age of 10 and 14. And we would do like seminars and brainstorming sessions of saying, okay, how does today's 14-year-old behave when he turns 18 or when he turns 20, which is six years down the line? Uh, and uh, you are having a workshop today to figure out how your consumer is going to be six years down the line, which means you're forced to now think what your company would look like or how would they diversify six years down the line. And I think that that is the difference when you work for big companies versus when you're working for people who are very short-sighted or, 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 or are looking for today versus somebody who's building the not just the legacy, but the, they're building the, the business for tomorrow. Yeah, I, I will always be a, a big uh, supporter of long-term long-term thinking and it's easier said than done it's pretty easy to say oh you need to be thinking long term but just like you're describing the, the way that they approach doing that and institutionalize it uh, makes a big difference could you also talk about one of the things i'm really fascinated about uh, particularly you being in india and there's there's so many different languages in india 
And just in general, from a, a cultural standpoint, is it how does culture impact? Because it does culture impact, but of course it does. How how does culture impact sponsorships um, um, in your part of the world? Uh, it does impact in a big way because you know culture defines uh, processes, and culture then also defines like day to day processes, day to day habits, or just approach. Right. So when you when you come from a country where Things are very chaotic and people like to, to work in a chaotic environment. A lot of stuff is done last minute, which means a lot of deals are also done last minute. Uh, you know, Indians like to wait and look at options uh, before they decide. Uh, so a lot of times you see that you've done everything right. You've convinced the sponsor. You've shown him exactly the kind of value he needs. But even then, he will still wait till the last minute thinking he might get another deal or he might get some kind of a discount or he might. He might be able to squeeze in a little bit more from you if required, um, and that's cultural. That's that's got nothing to do with work. That's got nothing to do with a process. It's just culturally that's how we program. So culture does play a huge role in sponsorship. Uh, we also very seasonal, which means we we believe a lot in festivity. Uh, so a lot of our spends, a lot of the way people plan their marketing calendars, is replicated with what happens in the country. Uh, you know. With the U.S., of course, having a lot of holidays, uh, there is obviously maybe some kind of a campaign during, you know, 4th of July, which is obviously your Independence Day, Christmas is big, Thanksgiving is big, but not a lot beyond that, right? I mean, say these are like four or five holidays, maybe Halloween to a certain level. In India, there's a holiday every month, you know? So uh, a lot of the a lot of the cultural nuances of celebrations also get into marketing campaigns and sponsorship. So you need to like also like be smart with your money. Like, do I spend more money on Diwali, or do I spend more money on Christmas, or do I spend more money on Ganesh? These are all the things that that play a huge role in, in how our sponsorship is defined in this country. Yeah, I remember. I remember living in Fiji for a couple of years, and uh, Diwali was a big big event yeah. in in that country. That of course I I had never heard of before. Yeah. Then, can you talk a little bit about what is what is it that sponsors are looking for? How do they measure success in in sponsorship with esports? Do you think? Well, I think right now uh, in the current market, uh, it is still driven a lot with perception and FOMO, so fear of missing out. So a lot of the sponsorship that is still happening in the world of esports right now is, oh, like if I don't do it, my, my competitor will do it, or I need to do something in gaming. So they are like coming in and they're trying to put in the monies. Or very few brands really understand what they really want back from from gaming. The guys who understand what they want back from video games are very, very clear. Uh, they're looking to engage with an audience that potentially cannot be reached through traditional uh, form of advertising. So these guys are not watching TV. They're not watching billboards. They're not watching newspapers. They're not reading newspapers or radio. They are completely, they're putting ad blocks on on, on, on their social media. So these guys are the ones who are completely alienating themselves uh, from any kind of content consumption and only consuming what they want to, uh, but they're also playing video games. Uh, so that's why this is a place where you're trying to identify or relate to a consumer that's very hard to kind of talk to on a regular basis. So brands have identified that. So engagement is a big criteria for some of the big sponsors. Uh, and then the other one, of course, is uh, you know trying to build uh, the the next generation of marketing or the next generation of communication, right? Like there was a time when Pepsi was spending a lot of money with the with the NFL um, and uh, the Super Bowl, of course. They did it again this year, but uh, they're doing it to stay relevant. You know, they they're, they're doing it because they realize that the uh, you know uh, the audience is is uh, out. I would say Pepsi would possibly realize eventually if they spend like. 10% of the money they spend on the Super Bowl and esports, they'll probably get the same audience. You know? <laughs> but it's I, I think Pepsi does this for much bigger reasons, right? It's also more prestige and 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 it's it's more ego uh, when it comes to the Super Bowl, right? But a lot of these brands have also realized that they need to start talking to the next generation of consumers and it will start talking to them today. Because you grew up with Pepsi, I grew up with Pepsi or, or Coke, right? The younger generation is much healthy or they're, they're at least aware of their health. Are they aware of of what a Pepsi or a Coke can do in terms of damage to them, right? So 
if these guys don't relate to them today, don't talk to them today, the next 40 years for Pepsi or Coke will look really bad. Because if people stop drinking Coke and Pepsi, you know, so they need to start talking to them today. And, and I think that's the reason some of the, some of the guys are doing it because they need to talk to the next generation of customers. When we were talking to, um, uh, I gotta get better at remembering my names, uh, a guy from the, um, Doctors Without Borders, mm-hmm. the, the huge nonprofit that's doing really amazing work around the world. And, um, one of the things he was saying is one of the reasons that Doctors Without Borders wants to talk to esports fans. He says, not because they're big givers. If anything, they're, they're the, the least productive givers. But if you can, if they can get them to start giving at their age, the entire lifespan of giving is, is so much bigger. Instead of finding someone in their fifties and convincing them to spend a lot of money, get someone in their twenties to start spending a little bit of money and then over their lifespan. So it's just, just exactly uh, the kind of thing you're talking about. Can we, uh, I also want to talk about from the other side. If, if, if someone is looking for a sponsor, which we have a lot of people listening to these podcasts that are, are like, you know, they're like, yeah, tell me, tell me how, tell me how. Could you give some ideas on what's the best approach to, um, um, to getting, a, um, getting a sponsor if you're out there looking? I, I guess, I guess it kind of goes on different levels. Like, how do you identify and then how do you land them? Okay. Uh, I think the, to identify a sponsor, I think the the most important thing is you need to be very clear about your own product first. Right? I meet a lot of people who want to get a sponsor on board, but when when you when you deep dive into the product or when you deep dive into what they're trying to sell, they're not really clear about what exactly is the proposition that they're trying to sell. So if you're not going to be clear about what you're trying to sell or how you're trying to sell it, this you already lost the battle. It doesn't matter. You might be convinced. You might convince somebody to spend money once, but he'll never come back again, right? So the first point is you need to be a complete expert about your own product. You need to understand the product in and out in terms of what it can deliver on, what it cannot deliver on, so that when you're talking to somebody and you you can answer a zillion questions if he has all those questions, right? Questions are never bad. If if somebody's asking you a lot of questions, either he's interested in, in, in moving forward or he's just increasing his knowledge, which is both fine. You know, uh, I would rather be in a meeting room where somebody asking me a lot of questions than be in a meeting room where they have no questions, you know. So that's that's point number one. Point number two is uh, you need to be honest to yourself in terms of, one, what is the kind of money you're looking for? And then uh, scan down literally the, the, the categories of, of guys that you want to talk to. A lot of times I feel like people do like these uh, blind sprays where they just talk to anyone and everyone. Uh, because they are so desperate to get a sponsor on board, not realizing that it's extremely important to create some sort of a, a saliency or some sort of a understanding of why that partner would look at this particular product and be like, oh, there's a strategic fit right up there, right? So creating the strategic fit mentally in your own head and understanding why a sponsor would spend money with you is extremely important. So don't go out there and look desperate and talk to everyone. Be very selective about who you think are the best possible partners for your particular product and first talk to them, stick to them, push them uh, that category out, uh, which a lot of people don't do. And uh, if you do get the meeting and if you do get an opportunity to actually sit on the table, the way to land it would be always be prepared to educate because not everyone understands eSport. So a lot of handholding needs to be done uh, it is very frustrating sometimes. It might be done for very little money. But the idea is we are still in a phase where we are onboarding a lot of partners within this industry. So which means it's going to take four or five years or four or five attempts for these guys to actually pull out the big money. You know, So that's okay. If somebody wants to spend less money and he's taking a lot of time from you, do it. Do the hard work today so your future can be better. Yeah, it, it also goes back to the the long term approach. I always, most um, someone was t- saying that the best time to get a sponsor is when you don't need a sponsor. Yep, it's like you know, you know, be be thinking long term, not like oh, I've got to have someone for next week. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, let's say if you landed a sponsor, and and it, how do you how do you main, uh, maintain that relationship? Because I thought one of the things you just said was really good about, you know, you can, you might have them for one time, but they're not going to come back. How do you keep them coming back? 
I think that's more. I think that's more personal, right? I think it. It everyone has a different style. No, I think for me, uh, honestly, a lot of a lot of the people that I work with, uh, they become very close friends already. So a lot of them uh, look at me or look at uh, Nordwin as a potential partner to to service them over and above the sponsorship as well, right? So like a lot of times we give away, at least I give away a lot of information free. I give away a lot of uh, services for free sometimes as well. But that's because the relationship is more like a friend now where the idea is to always uh, be, uh, it, it's like when you have a friend, what do you do? Like you, you always look at the best interests of your friend, right? Uh, you know, when, when a friend tells you, I'm going to buy this car and if you genuinely think that this car is shit, you're not going to tell him to buy that car, right? You, you're going to be honest to him. You're going to be like, hey, listen, I know you like this car, but this is the problem with this car and I think you should look at this option. Or the same way, if he's buying a really good car, and uh, even though you are jealous about the fact that he can afford that car, you're not going to be like, don't buy the car. You're going to be like, hey, I really am very happy for you. It's the same concept with, with a partner, right? Uh, you be yourself. I mean, you be honest. If he's, if he's doing something stupid, you call that out. If he's done something nice, you call that out. You, what, what partners are looking for or what, what sponsors are looking for is a true custodian of, of uh, the particular genre or like in, in, the, in the world of video games. He, he, he should be able to trust you with everything. That you're not, you're not, you're not going to put money before anything, but you're going to put the actual relationship or the value of the relationship before everything, right? Which means if he's doing something wrong, you would call it out. You're not going to be like, oh, because you're the client and because you decided it, you know, you'll take ownership for things that go wrong and uh, you will celebrate the victories with him. Uh, if you're able to do that, uh, I think it's very easy to keep a sponsor. Uh, remember, at the end of the day, sponsors are not like some aliens. Right? They're also humans on the other side. That's, that's one thing I always tell everyone. that uh, While it's two brands doing business, it's, it's the two humans who are doing business together, right? Uh, so a lot of sponsorship management is just human management. Uh, uh, and uh, if you just treat another human with the kind of respect and kindness that you do your own uh, friends and family, well, nine out of ten times, you're going to be fine. What, what a great, great way to look at it, because that's really true. It's like it, it is a person to person business, yep. even though you, you may not think of it that way, uh, from the outside. How important are metrics? How important are numbers to sponsors? Do they want to see numbers? Yeah. It's very, very important. I think it's, it's getting, it's getting more and more important. I think the whole world's turning into data, uh, and looking at data very, very closely. Uh, also because, you know, we never had, this kind of information before. Um, you know, previously when people did sponsorships in the 80s and the 90s, everything was done manually. It was more perception driven. Uh, you know, I remember what people used to do like, so like, say for example, if you're Coke and you're sponsoring a big event and if you are the VP of Coke and you're driving, say, from from Los Angeles to, to I don't know, Las Vegas, uh, I would probably buy billboards on that road so that you get to see it and then you feel that, hey, I'm, my team is doing their job because I could see the billboard. Uh, so it was always to keep the, the right people happy, right? In today's world, it's not like that because in today's world, it's like it's all over the place. The information's everywhere. And, uh, you know, if you do one major mess or one major screw up, it, it gets called out very, very quickly. Uh, so that's why data has become more and more important because that's the only way to measure stuff now. Uh, so brands definitely look at that. And we look at that very, very closely as well. Uh, I think uh, some there needs to be a very good uh, mix of data and I believe in intuition a lot. Uh, so a lot of times uh, data can confuse you. So uh, when I present data to clients, one is I have to be extremely sure of the numbers myself, uh, but they need to be presented in a manner that it rationalizes certain decisions or it it helps you to decide something. Data without any decision-making capability is just a whole crap of numbers and doesn't make any sense to anyone. So if, you, if if I get people who present data to me and I'm like, okay, so what's the conclusion of this data? What direction you should take? Or or what is your recommendation after looking at this data? That is more important than data, actually. So the way I present data to clients is a whole lot of numbers are good, but this is what my study of those numbers is inclining us to do. Either we do this or we do this, or we plan to do something like this because that's the impact that it's going to bring. I think that's what clients are looking for. So when somebody says, please present the data to me, 
He doesn't want you to show him the Excel sheet. He wants him to show him that you studied the Excel sheet and now you're giving one direction that he doesn't want to do himself, to be honest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, make the numbers tell a story. It's yep. like, uh, it is the, it is, is the best approach. And, and also what I've found is like, especially like in, in direct marketing, uh, testing things is really important. But I always tell people when I work with them, it's like, don't test things. Don't ever test anything that you can't do something with, uh, with the results. Don't test something just to be able to prove something. It's like, no, be able to prove something and then take those results and do something with them. The other thing I like when you're talking about billboards, when I worked at Warner Brothers, we, uh, we would buy radio spots on, on public radio in West LA because we knew that the top execs from the company were, were always traveling from the West side over to Burbank in the morning. And there's a really good chance they're listening to NPR. And if yeah. they hear about our, our projects, it makes us all oh, like we're, we're everywhere when we were only in, in one, in one little spot. Last thing I want to talk about here in a little bit in, in detail is uh, mobile, <laughs> because one of the things that certainly here in the U.S. we we lose sight of is what how, what a big deal mobile esports is to the rest of the world. Could you talk a little bit about how big mobile is in your part of the world and how it impacts sponsorship? Well, I say mobile is everything. Well, for a market like India, we are looking at I think the last number that I saw, I think we have around four hundred and fifty million smartphones. Um, you know, which means, you know, technically every single person in the U.S. is uh, a mobile phone user in, in India, you know, and uh, that itself is a huge number. Now, with the games and the AAA games now being modified and released on, um, on mobile phones uh, has really enhanced the experience of how people play video games. Uh, you know, back in the day, mobile phones or mobile phone games were not that attractive because it didn't have the kind of depth or the graphics or the storytelling ability that a console and a PC had. But that has changed drastically in the last five years, uh, which means more and more people have access to to playing these piece on on their mobile phones. Uh, I also feel like it's important to acknowledge that mobile phones are becoming more and more uh, a medium for people to get into and introduce themselves into the world of video games. So it's also a huge sampling activity. And then a lot of them actually then eventually migrate to play console or play PC um, if they're serious about playing video games. So it is a very big deal in India. Uh, I think for us, we are a mobile-first market. And I think we'll continue to be a mobile-first market for as long as we exist, to be very honest. Uh, but mobiles, mobile esports has also uh, given the opportunity for PC esports or PC sales and console sales to actually drastically go up as well. So the more people play on mobile phones, the more they get introduced to the idea of video games, the more they will go back and buy a PC and a console as well. Uh, and that's brilliant to see because eventually what's going to happen is for specifically for esports or for certain video games, the platform that is played on is not going to be important anymore because the platform is just going to be an input device. Now, whether that input device is a mobile phone or whether it's a PC or whether it's a console, it's not going to be relevant, I would say, 10 years down the line. Um, which means everything is going to be cross-platform. Uh, I wouldn't. Lit- I think Riot's already working on it. You know, where I could literally like, continue my game while I'm playing on the PC. I could continue the same game on 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 a mobile phone if I had to just leave the room. Uh, which I think will change the game drastically for everyone. Uh, but for now, the advantage of mobile first, of course, is also that it has massive reach. Uh, it has uh, insane amount of connectivity. So, which means if I want to, if I want to interact with you as a, as a gamer, and if you're a PC gamer or a console gamer, I have to wait for you to come onto a PC or come onto a, a console for me to communicate with you in some kind of notification or some kind of uh, call to action. But if you're a mobile or phone gamer, uh, you're always carrying a mobile phone with you. So I could send you notifications and communicate with you pretty much 24 seven because you are carrying your phone with you wherever you're going. And I think that opportunity to engage with a mobile phone is so much more higher with, than a console and a PC. I think that is where brands have seen the huge difference. They're like, I can engage with a mobile esports guy on much higher note than a PC or a, or a console game. 
And that's why the big sponsorship money is 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 coming in Bovide Esports right now. And I hope that continues to grow for the next few years. Do you think that the amount of money, let's say if you're if you're a sponsor and you're going to sponsor an event that's a mobile event versus a PC event, are you going to spend less money because it's mobile? Or is it pretty comparable? Uh it depends on the market, right? Mobile is going to give you the reach and mobile is going to give you the numbers. So in principle, mobile will be more expensive than PC in certain markets. But remember, PC is also the pinnacle of sport from an e-sport perspective as well, which means uh, you know, PC is also going to give you experience. It's going to give you the stadium-like feel. It's going to give you the, the fans. Uh, and it's there for you to see, right? Counter-Strike done the right way, complete PC game filling up stadiums, if presented the right way, makes the same amount of money at G-Mobile. Or League of Legends, which is a PC game, done the right way, presented the right way, attracts all kinds of sponsors. So it also depends on how you present the entire package. But PC Esports does have the opportunity to uh, create the required, I would say, not just the look and feel, but also the consumer experience that brands are willing to pay a premium for. Uh, but mobile esports has the numbers, so it really depends on on which side of the of the table that you're sitting as a brand. What is more important for you? Is reach more important for you, or activating a lot more people is more important for you, or premiumness and perception and uh, consumer experience is more important for you? And depending on that, you will decide whether it's PC or console for you, or 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 mobile for you. And what's interesting about that, because don't always think of it that way here, but the the sponsor is is going to be more familiar with the mobile audience in 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 certain parts of the world than yeah. they are because they're already used to reaching people through that medium. So it's not like you're not trying to get them to shift to something that they're unfamiliar with. It's like no, that's that's how Pepsi, that's how Coke is already talking to people in in India. What, what's the what, Connectivity like in India. I always thought that the internet is really, really good in India. I must say the internet is is brilliant. Now, so I think we are one of the cheapest data countries in the world. Uh, I think we've got uh, around three or four network providers that are now currently providing us with five G services already. Uh, I think it is like I pay. Let me see in dollars how much is that. I pay around. $15 a month for unlimited internet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. No, no one, no one does that here. No. I pay like $15 a month for unlimited internet on my phone. And I pay the same in my house for my fiber connection. Wow. Cause you know, here I paid four times that for yeah. the promotional period for a year. And then they jack it up to who knows, knows what it is uh, afterwards. No, that's great. No. And Reginald who has, uh, who's, uh, here at the podcast, he's, he he spent some time in India, and he's always talking about wow, great the uh, the internet was yeah. when he was there. So yeah, really really good size. Hey, you know I appreciate really appreciate you taking a little bit of time here, especially it's getting late there. Um, but to talk about sponsorship because sponsorship is something that we cannot talk about too much because it's, it's always great to hear from people who have so much experience like you do at in the industry to hear hear your your take on things. Where can people find out more about what it is that you're doing? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is Fanatic Nemo. Um, so I pretty much post most of my stuff on on Instagram. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's where pretty much I, I, I post everything that we do. But uh, I, mean, so I, would, I would like to take the opportunity to say that you know, India, is a, India is a great market and a great country. And you know, if you ever if you're ever deciding to visit this country, it obviously has a lot to offer to everyone, uh, not just from a, from a work perspective, but from a cultural experience perspective as well. It's a, it's a beautiful place. And uh, like, you know, like any other country, we are, we would love to host people and host uh, big tournaments one day. And that's, that's, that's what I've been aiming for. And I think we've been working very closely with quite a few publishers to bring in some big tournaments to India. And uh, we've been successful in the past, and I hope that in the ne- in the next few years we become a very strong esports hub and a very important part of this larger ecosystem. Uh, you have, there's there's no reason that you cannot be just that. And we we do not talk politics here, but but your leader was just here in the U.S. 
yeah. over the past few weeks. Great press. I mean, it, it was it was it, India just uh, you know just got on so many people's radar that weren't thinking of it and and didn't think of it in the terms of 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 uh, of you know what a world leading country India is. So that that was a great great PR uh, uh, win for uh, for the country here in the United States anyway. Cool. Okay. So again, thanks for everyone for listening to the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks again, Namish. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully I'll be able to hear this soon on um, on the platform and hope people like it as well. We'll do that. Thanks. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.